0: Well, I don't know about you, but I love living in a suburb like ours. Greenwood is such a wonderful place to live. Uh, m- many of us have our needs met. Uh, the, the wages of the jobs are... Almost enough to to buy a house in the land, you know, inflation's gone up, so it's a little tougher for that now. Uh, Crime being low, it's a good place to raise kids, a good place to live life, and I thank God for that. Uh, I say that every once in a while so that we can say something else that's very important for us to remember as a church, and that is as good as Greenwood is of a place to live, as good as the American suburbs are, there is in each of them a danger to your soul that you have to be aware of. And that danger is that when all of the things are here, when the you know prestigious schools are here and the good jobs are here and many of us have those jobs and the houses are here and the good restaurants are here and all the things that we want are right within our reach, it feels like the good life is within grasp. Like if I dedicate myself to it, that plan I have for a good life that I want Maybe I could get it here. Maybe I could get that perfect job and that perfect marriage and those perfect kids that have all the perfect things to go to. Uh, When I was young, the picture of the good life was just about the same for everybody. And we used to joke, everybody wants a spouse and a house and 2.4 kids and a white picket fence, right? That's how we would joke about it. Today, everybody kind of has their own version of it. Some of us want the spouse, some don't. Some of us want the kids and some don't. Some of us want the job and some of us don't. We got our own different versions, but we still have a picture of the good life in front of us and it feels attainable here in Greenwood, if you set your heart on it, if you forget to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and let all these things be added to you as an add-on, as a sort of accessory to the good life that we have in Christ, it kind of feels like we can get it. And that life of building our own kingdom, living for the good life, well, it turns out to be a pretty restless life. Because it turns out you you can't really build that perfect life for yourself. The spouse doesn't come into your life the year you expected them to come into your life. Or they do and they turn out to not be an absolutely perfect person. Or after a while, the romance fades. Or the kids come before you thought they would come. Or they come after you thought they would come. Or they don't come at all. Or inflation hits and the house prices are suddenly too much and you can't afford the house anymore. Or the kids grow up and begin doing things that you don't want them to do. There are so many ways that it can go astray. And if you live your life trying to hold together this perfect life you planned for yourself, well, you won't get a whole lot of sleep. You will be an anxious person trying to hold together a kingdom that you cannot hold together. And what's worse is that living for the good life is not only restless, it's also fruitless in the end of all things. Whatever you might build for yourself in this world The day will come when you have to resign to death and lose every bit of it. You cannot take any of it to the place where you are going. And so, living for the good life is not only restless, but it's futile. And this morning, we are going to see in the centerpiece of the Psalm of Ascents a better way a life that is restful, a life that is fruitful a life that is part of building a better kingdom than your own and strength that is more powerful than your own. So if you're just joining us, we are at the tail end of a sermon series this morning. We're closing one down this morning. We've been in the Psalms of Ascent for eight weeks now. And this is a collection of 15 psalms that were gathered together for the people of Israel for them to sing on their way from their hometowns up to the mountain of Jerusalem for festivals of worship. Now you may be used to me saying this by now, but they were taking a journey that was from a place where God felt far to a place where God's presence dwelled, the city of Jerusalem. And they were taking a journey that was long and dangerous and exhausting, but they were not taking that journey alone. They would travel it together in groups, and they had songs like these to sing together the whole way. And in that way, their life shows us what it is like to live as a Christian journeying from a place where God feels far to the new Jerusalem where God dwells in the flesh. Walking a journey that is long and can be exhausting and is at times dangerous, but not walking it alone. You have brothers and sisters to walk it with and singing songs the whole way. Because those psalms are arranged symmetrically, we've been working them in pairs from the outside in, first the first and the last, and then second and second to last, all the way to the center And today we get to the centerpiece, the most important message in the Psalms of Ascent. We have talked about the journey to the coming kingdom. We have looked at pictures of the kingdom that we are going to. We have looked at the Old Testament and New Testament pictures of the kingdom we are going to. And now we ask perhaps the most important question. This kingdom we're headed to, who builds this kingdom? The answer is in Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies at the gates. The words of the Lord. So through that psalm, the Spirit calls us away from the restless fruitlessness of building our kingdom in our power to the restful fruitfulness of building his kingdom in his power now at the surface this psalm appears to be just a good wisdom psalm with one principle told through three different images The principle is that tension we all feel between our responsibility in this world to do good work and God's sovereignty over all things. The workers have to work to build the house or it doesn't get built. We know that. But unless the Lord builds the house, well, then the workman's work is in vain. We have a role. We do real work. But it is the Lord who gives the success and the results. We see that in three different images in this psalm. First, with workers building a house, but unless the Lord builds it, their work is in vain. Second, with watchmen protecting a city to keep it safe so that everyone can sleep soundly. They do their work. They must stay awake throughout the night, and it's difficult to do. But at the end of things, though they have a role in protecting the city, it is the Lord who protects the city. And if the Lord doesn't keep the city safe, the watchmen are staying awake in vain. And then the third image is the bearing of children in verses 3 and on. The husband and wife, of course, have their part in the conception of children, but unless the Lord works the miracle, the children cannot come. And so with all three of these things, we have a role. And if we don't do our part, it doesn't work. But ultimately, success can only come from the God who gives it. Now, we could dive into that wisdom because it means a lot for our lives, but this psalm actually in its placement as the centerpiece of the Psalms of Ascent has a much deeper meaning than that. Because these three things, the building of a house, the protecting of a city that leads to rest from enemies, and the bearing of many children— these happen to be the three things that the Lord promised to King David in second Samuel seven. Now this is hinted at in the other psalms of a sense because all of these images are attached to places like Jerusalem and a person like King David and other psalms we have looked at. But it comes most pointed when we see God's promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7. So in that story, David is distressed because the Lord does not have a house. He's got a house, but the Lord is dwelling in a tent and he wants to build a house for the Lord. And he says, I will give myself... No sleep or rest until I build for the Lord a house. And then the Lord says to him, well, that's nice, but I will actually give you rest from your enemies. So I will protect your city. And moreover, he says, I will build you a house unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. The Lord says, I will build you a house. And then he says what that means. I mean, David already has a palace. What does it mean that he's going to build David a house? He says, when you are old and you go to lie down with your fathers, I will raise up sons after you who will rule in your name. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The Lord says, I will raise up sons after you. So the building of a house, the protection of his city and the rest that comes from that. And that great heritage of many children, generations of kings coming after him. This is a celebration of the promise given to King David. We saw in 2 Samuel 7 that the Lord has promised those things to David, so they will come to David. We see here that they can only come to him if the Lord gives them. Now that matters for us because those promises to David are fulfilled in the one we have gathered here to worship this morning. They are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who was himself a descendant of King David, a son of David, but not just of King David. He was a son of God as well, the son of God. So there he was, God and man walking the earth, fulfilling all of these promises to David And then he lived his life in perfection and sinlessness. And then he died to pay for the sins of his people. And then he rose from the dead to give eternal life to his people. And then ascended up into heaven where he is seated on a throne at the right hand of God the Father. Where his mighty scepter rules every world event and everything you read about in the news this week. And he will come in return setting up the new Jerusalem, which will come down from heaven, and he will rule heaven and earth forever. A son of David from the new Jerusalem, a city safe and protected from its enemies, a city full of sons and daughters like us. So this is a psalm that is not ultimately about your house. This is a psalm that is about the Lord's house. It's not about your home and locking your doors, ultimately. It's about your church and the building of God's kingdom. Jesus actually takes all these images and applies them to the church as well. We see here, unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. When Peter tells Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he confesses the lordship of Jesus, the first human to do this. Jesus says to him, On the rock of that confession, I will build my church. So we've got a role in the building of the church, right? We proclaim the lordship of Jesus Christ. He says on that confession, he is the one who builds that church. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain. We have a role in the protecting of the church, too. There are many verses written to pastors and elders that say things like keep a close watch on the flock, right? Protect the people of God. We even keep a close watch on each other, and it says if anyone pulls someone back from sin, they've saved their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins, right? So we have a role in protecting each other from falling away. Your pastor and pastors have roles in protecting you, but the Lord says... I know my sheep, and no one snatches them out of my hand. All right, so we've got a role, but it is the Lord who keeps this city, though we have watchmen. And the city, this is filled with spiritual sons and spiritual daughters, right? People we have led to Christ, people who have come to Christ Jesus. And we have a role in that, don't we? We share the gospel, and then we proclaim the gospel again. And then when people come to Christ, we, we Teach them to observe all that he has commanded us. Jesus says, go and proclaim the gospel to all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. we got a role in that. And then he says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we have a role in making spiritual sons and daughters and discipling them when they come to Christ. But it's him who does the work of bringing them in. So all three of these pictures then apply to us as a church as we seek to see the kingdom of God built right here. So the first thing I have to do then is call you to that Lord Jesus. He has died for sins. He has risen from the dead. And if you do not trust him in faith, come to him, receive forgiveness of sins, receive eternal life, receive a good Lord who will give you good guidance for life, and so much more in him. For those of you that are believers who are interested in seeing the church grow, the main thing this psalm teaches us is that it is the Lord who builds, fills, and protects his kingdom. These psalmists would sing this psalm, going to Jerusalem. And they would celebrate along the way, that city we are headed to, it's the Lord that built it. It's the Lord that has filled it. It is the Lord who has protected it. And we together walk to the new Jerusalem of Jesus Christ. And we say together, it is the Lord who is building that city. It is the Lord who is protecting us now and will protect us there. And it is the Lord who has filled that city with many sons and with many daughters. The Lord is the one who fills, builds and protects his kingdom for us. We see in verses 1 and 2 a rebuke of the vanity of trying to build it in your own power and the restlessness of trying to build it in your own power. Unless you build the house, those who unless the Lord builds it, those who build it labor in vain. It's fruitless. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is fruitless. It's in vain that we get up early. It's in vain that we eat the bread of anxious toil for he gives to his beloved sleep. When we try to build the city in our own power or worse, build our own kingdom in our own power, it's futile and it's restless. So we pull some wisdom from that. Building your kingdom in your power is restless and fruitless. It leads to a restless, fruitless life. Building the Lord's kingdom in the Lord's power leads to a restful and fruitful life. So this is a call then to turn from building our kingdom in our power to building God's kingdom in God's power. So I'm going to spend the rest of this morning ironing out, what does that look like in my life? What would it look like if I were building my kingdom? What would it look like if I were helping build the Lord's kingdom? What would it look like if I tried to build the kingdom in my power? What would it look like if we built it in the Lord's power. So first, the first turn you're being called to this morning is to turn from building your kingdom to building the Lord's kingdom. What would it mean if we were to try to build our own kingdoms, right? The Lord's given us a lot here in this beautiful place. What would it mean if all of that were my kingdom, were your kingdom? Well, when we talk about kingdoms. The, the way you can measure the extent of a kingdom is how far is the will of that king being done, right? You want to get a map out and you see the border in the map and say, what's the difference between this side of the border and that side of the border? Well, in real world terms, on this side of the border, the people do what this king wants them to do. And on that side of the border, the people do not do what this king wants them to do, right? The borders of the kingdom go as far as the king's will is being done. And so if everything God has given to you is your kingdom and your life is fixed on building your kingdom, essentially you are saying over everything in your life, my will be done. I want all of this to adhere to my will. The job. I want the job. And so I sought the job and I have the job. And I want the job to get me the fulfillment that I want and to get me the money to buy the things that I want so I can have the AirPods that I want and the Nikes that I want and all the things that I want. And then I have the spouse to make me happy and give me all of the things that I want. And I have the kids to make me proud and give me all of the feelings that I want to have and the pride that I want to have in them. And they're going to go live the lives that I have determined for them because they're here to make me happy me 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 right my will be done in my life this is a self-centered kingdom and when we build a kingdom like that we have to do it in our own power and since we cannot hold a kingdom together like that we wind up anxious restless and in the end those endeavors are fruitless. Even if you get all the stuff, the job that gives you everything you want, the house that you want and everything you want, and the spouse that gives you everything you want, and the kids that give you everything you want and everything else, and if somehow your heart doesn't balloon up and demand more after that, and you spend the last years of your life in satisfaction, knowing you have gotten all of the things, Jesus says of the end of your life, What does it profit for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give for his life? Whatever kingdom you have built up is a palace of glass that will one day have a rock thrown through it. It is not just restless. It is futile to build your own kingdom. Or Jesus says differently in another place, Anyone who hears my words and does not do them is like the one who builds their house on the sand. The rain falls and the waves crash and the wind blows and the storm comes and that house fell with a great crash because it was built upon the sand. You build your life on your own wisdom, your own teaching and your own power to get your own will done and crash goes the house at the end. Ladies, some of you are studying Ecclesiastes right now on Wednesday night, and what Jesus says in few words, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, uh, is parsed out over, I believe it's 12 chapters in Ecclesiastes, right? Jesus is a better sage, so he can condense it down into one sentence, right? But the point of all of those sometimes mystifying chapters that you are reading in that study is... What would it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? It's the story of a man who has everything he wants available to him. Either King Solomon himself, probably the most powerful king ever, or a fictitious king who is even more powerful than King Solomon. He says, I'm going to seek out all of the pleasure in the world and see if I can find meaning and happiness in it. And he says, at the end, it's a vanity. It's a chasing after the wind. It just goes away. And so he gives himself to knowledge and wisdom. And he learns everything that can be learned and says, in the end, it's just a balloon that pops. It's just a bubble that pops. It's vanity right? And then he goes to power and says, I've sought it all the way to the end, and I've gotten all the power I want, and it's just a bubble that bursts. And on and on he goes through all the things that we might build our me-centered kingdoms with. And he says, every last one of them is like a bubble that just bursts. It's futile in the end. And so he says, The end of the matter is fear God and keep his commands. That's the whole duty of man. There you will find fulfillment and happiness. If you want that condensed down into just one sentence, it's what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So that's the life we're being called to turn from, from building your own kingdom and your own power. And the scariest thing about this is that if that's how you want to live your life, building your kingdom and your power, There are actually churches all over our country and even our town that would love to help you do that. If you want to treat the Holy Scriptures like a book of convenient pro-tips for having the good life that you want, not like the authoritative Word of God that you sit under and every word of it is true, but hey, there are a couple of tidbits and nuggets in there that I can take and have a better life if I follow them. If you want to treat Jesus as somebody that you can come to and trust and have better health because you trust him and more wealth because you trust him, there are preachers who would say, come on in, just make sure you tithe to me first, right? And then uh, let's show you how to, through faith, have a, have a healthy and wealthy life. If you instead want the, what we can call the self-help gospel, right? The pro tips for life gospel, There are so many churches that would love to say, okay, let's maybe read one text that gives a little bit of insight into how to have that perfect marriage, perfect job, perfect life that you want. We'll tack on the gospel at the end of things, and then you can go out and live that good life. The gospel repackaged for people who want their best life now and to have eternity secured. But Jesus says, what what does it profit, though, if you gain that whole world? If you do all of that, but you aren't living under the lordship of Jesus and you lose your soul. So returning from a life that tries to co-opt Jesus into someone who gets me the things that I want. And to a life that lives under him as king, that builds his kingdom. Under his lordship. What would that look like? What would it look like if we were not building our kingdoms, but building the Lord's kingdom instead? Especially when you have lots of good stuff and you're like, is it okay that I have this good stuff? What what, what would that look like? Here's what it would look like very simply, enjoying God's fleeting gifts, but dedicating yourself to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And these other things will be added to you, right? So, so we set our eyes on the kingdom of heaven. And if he gives you the spouse, you say, oh, thank God, right? God is good. I have a spouse, right? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. You receive God's good gifts, but you know that they are fleeting, right? Romance doesn't last forever. And tragically, people do not last forever, And so, if your marriage goes best case scenario and all of your prayers are answered, one of you will have to pick out a nursing home for the other one, right? Because all things fade. All of God's good gifts fade. So, we say, God, I received the gift, but I know, I know the gift is fleeting. And so, my heart is set on the kingdom of heaven. If God gives you the beautiful children. You receive them as a gift, but you know that they're going to grow up and they're going to move out on you and they're going to go live their own lives and do their own thing. It's probably very different from the plan that you have for them. Good gifts are good, but they're fleeting. And so we set our heart on the kingdom of heaven. That means then that all the stuff we have from the job to the money, to the people, to the house, all of it, we're saying this belongs to the Lord. And so, in as much of any of it is material and can be counted, this is why we give a tithe to the Lord to say the whole thing is His, so we'll give a tenth to Him. And with all that is left over, we say, Lord, I will use this under Your commands, and I will use as much of this as I can to benefit Your kingdom. Right? I'll enjoy good gifts because You give good gifts, but we are living for Your kingdom. And that means that now you've got a new priority for your money right? Still enjoy some of it, right? The Lord gives good gifts. But how much could we benefit the kingdom of heaven with gifts to missions, with gifts to the church, with gifts to the poor? Now we've got our sights set on another kingdom, not on ours. That means if the Lord gives you the spouse, you say, I thank God for a good spouse. And we are going to relate to each other under the lordship of Jesus, the way that he teaches us to relate to each other. And so the husband will say, well, the last thing I want to do is sacrifice more for my wife. But I read the words of Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I submit myself to Jesus' lordship. And the wife may say, my least favorite part about the Bible is that wives submit to your husband's stuff, but I live under the Lord's leadership now. And I will do our marriage the way that he says to do our marriage. And if the Lord gives you children You say, these children are gifts from God and and they're fleeting gifts. One day they will be gone. But while they are here... The Lord has given me the kingdom responsibility of raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so now we're raising those kids with our eyes on God's kingdom and not on our eyes on on being satisfied. And on and on it goes with all of the things the Lord gives us. He gives you a house and you say we will live under his ways in this house and we will open the door to those in need and to guests and we will show hospitality. We will use this house under the Lord's leadership. It means taking your kingdom and putting it under the Lord's lordship. So that your kingdom is a subset of his kingdom. And anything you have within it is lived within the fear of God. This is what Jesus means when he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So that's the first turn we're called to make, from building our kingdom our way to building The Lord's kingdom. And many of you have made that turn. And many of you would say, yeah, I have made that turn. And I have to wake up every morning and I have to make it again, right? Because we've all got that self-centeredness in our heart. And we must take up our cross daily and follow him. Let this be your daily call to turn from building your kingdom to building the Lord's kingdom. But even if you have made that turn, there may be a second turn you need to make as well. Second turn this psalm calls us to is from building God's kingdom in our strength to building God's kingdom in his power. And that's most directly what the psalm is about. See, that house that's built in verse one, it's only built if the Lord builds the house, right? It's by God's power. And that city that is protected In the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2, it's only protected if the Lord protects them. Those children in the last verses, they only come if the Lord gives them. This kingdom that we are building, it can only be built by the Lord. We have a role in it, but only the Lord can build it. All throughout Israel's history and the church's history, we have tried to build God's kingdom in our strength. And it has never gone well for us. It's always started out with a lot of energy and a lot of hoorah, and it's never ended well. One of the early times this happened is recorded in the book of Numbers for us, a story some of us are familiar with, but a little part in the end we often forget about. God's people are on the edge of the promised land, and the Lord says, I give you strength and power. Go and conquer that land, and you may dwell there because I have given the land for you. Be strong and courageous. And they send some scouts to go check out the land, and the scouts come back, and they say, ah, no, those people are big and scary. We're never going to be able to win that battle. Two of the scouts say, no, the Lord's with us. We can do this. But the other 10 say, no, we can't do it. And they win the day. They persuade the people of Israel not to go and conquer the land. And so the Lord says, well, okay, if you won't go, I'll let your children go. I'll lead you back in the desert. You go wander the desert for 40 years. And when all of you are dead and your children come back to this land... I will give them strength and power, and they can conquer this land. Some of us are familiar with that story. We often forget what happens next. Then, after the Lord says, Okay, I take my strength from you, I will not go with you, you go into the desert for 40 years. Some of the people of Israel say, Hey, that was, that was not very smart of us. Like, we can go and conquer that land. We have swords. We have weapons. We can do this. And they band together many Israelites who go into the promised land without God's blessing or power to take the land in courage, in their own strength. And they get crushed. And they run back. Many of them die. Many of them run back. Because when we try to build God's kingdom in our power, it does not work. It goes terribly. This happens later in the book of 1 Corinthians. After Jesus sets up the church, and there's a church in Corinth, and Paul has been there and visited, and he says, When I came, I didn't come in the world's ways. I didn't try to build God's kingdom in my power. I came in weakness and meekness and humility and God showed his power and a church was built but after he left these guys called super apostles came in so, you know Paul and Peter and those guys i mean they're pretty good but i mean if you heard them preach they're only they're only okay you know Have you heard me preach yeah i'm better aren't i and with great bursting rhetoric. They would preach these sermons and say, look how much better we are than Peter and Paul. Don't you want to follow us as God's emissaries and not with them? So one group that is preaching in the power of me, and then Paul, who is preaching only with the power of God, And while Paul is away, this group preaches in their own power and the church just gets fractured and split apart because they're like, oh, I like that guy. No, I like that guy the best. No, I like that guy. the best. They're fractured into pieces and Paul writes them and rebukes them and says, don't you remember? I didn't preach in the power of rhetoric, right? That's what the Greeks do. That's what the world around us does. I preach in the power of God. It's the only way to build his church. And similarly, today, it is tempting to try to build his church in our power using the world's tools. In first century Greek world, the tool was rhetoric. If you could give a cooler sounding speech than the other guy, it didn't matter if your speech made sense, right? Good rhetoric is what they wanted and what they were drawn to. And in our day, the world has tools to build movements as well. Tools like celebrity and entertainment and emotionalism and division. If you want to draw a crowd, a combination of celebrity and entertainment will do it. All right, you put on a good show. People will go see the good show, won't they? And in your power, you can kind of hold a church together for a little while. And the only thing that really tops that is if you can get that like upper echelon person that everyone wants to be around and get them there on the stage. Perfect illustration of this right now is the whole thing going on with Taylor Swift going to football games. And the football ratings are through the roof because one celebrity is there in the box and we want to tune in and watch one person, right? Well, what if you get your kind of group of groupies, entourage around your pastor, and you build him up like he's some kind of celebrity, right? And then everybody wants to be around him, and then everybody wants to come to the church so they can be around this incredible next-level person that we all want to be in the presence of. This is one of the church growth tactics in the American church these days, the celebrity pastor model of building a church, Another one that works very much in the world and works in the church as well is emotional manipulation. Uh, in today's world, if you can make something feel true, people will embrace it. It doesn't have to add up and make sense. You just need to be able to feel it, right? So I watched this week actually on YouTube a video of a, a man who is a pastor Uh, who confesses, he has repented of this now, but he said, I used to be an emotionally manipulative preacher. We had a hundred people come down the aisle every Sunday because I knew how to push emotional buttons. And he said, here's what you would do. You would start off your sermon with a really big problem that feels unsolvable, so things just feel kind of dire. And then you kind of preach whatever you want for a little bit, and you just have to make sure you end with a really sad story. And here's the goal, he said, because broken people come to church, of course. He said, you're just trying to get the most broken person in there to cry and then come forward. Because if they come forward crying, everybody will come forward. This was, this was his preaching method. Now, he says now, that was wicked, it was wrong, I turned from it, and he's preaching gospel now. Uh, but he wants the church to know that this is common in churches, this happens, right? He said, We had a hundred people coming forward every Sunday, and 70 of them were the same people every week, right? The fruit from that kind of building God's kingdom and my power to push people's emotional buttons, it doesn't last, right? It's it's fruitless, ultimately. Uh, So we're turning from using the world's tools to try to build the kingdom of God. And these days, another big one is political division. You can build cable media empires or YouTube channels on getting people angry about politics. And some churches want to do this as well. We are putting all of the world's methods away. And we are saying, Lord, we build your kingdom in your power because you're the one who really builds your kingdom. So what does it look like then to be a part of building God's kingdom in His power. Practically, it means two things. We use His tools and we pray for His help. He's given us in the scriptures good tools to build this kingdom. Now, if you're doing something in your own life you want to dedicate to the Lord, it means the same thing. Say you want to start a business, right? You're going to use the Lord's tools to start that business. What are they? Well, He's given you biblical wisdom by which, through the Proverbs and their advice and the other wisdom books, you can build up the relational skill to build the connections you need to have a good business. And you can build up the work ethic and the honest way of doing business that makes people want to work for you. You can build a good business on biblical wisdom in the Proverbs. The Lord gives you those tools to do that. And it means that because your kingdom is under God's kingdom, you're saying, Lord, this whole thing is yours. I will lead this whole thing your way. I will treat my employees well because you tell me to. I will be a just boss. I will treat my customers fairly. I'll do everything the Lord's way and I'll give you glory. And what I gain from it, I'll try to use to build your kingdom. And then because unless the Lord builds the house, the workmen labor in vain, uh, you're praying all the time. Lord, Lord, would you help us do well? Lord, would you give me success? I will do the work. Would you bless the work and give me success? That's what it looks like in your private life to do the Lord's work like that, using his tools and leaning upon him for help. You would do the same thing for the people you're discipling in the church. Uh, You would do the same thing with your anxieties in your personal life, taking them to prayer and using the tools that the Lord gives you to try to resolve them. For our church, it means that we build, we fill, and we protect this kingdom with God's tools and God's power. So how is it built? Well, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And the rock is Peter's confession. Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so on that proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord, as I said earlier, that's, that's the cornerstone. That's the most important material we are building with. And then the New Testament says on that cornerstone is the foundation, the apostles and the prophets and their teaching, which is preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. And so the Scriptures become the foundation that we build upon. And in that foundation, we find all sorts of wonderful materials and tools, like the preaching of the Word of God and baptism and admonishing one another with psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs, and the Lord's Supper, and teaching other people to follow Jesus' commandments, what we often call discipleship, Uh, good things even like church discipline that he gives to us, like deacons, and pastors, and their offices, and the work that they do in the church. These things are good materials to build a church with. We don't need celebrity and emotionalism, if we have materials like that to work with. So that means our church growth plan is not anything new and groundbreaking. It's a little different. It's a little quirky. But we preach the gospel and we sing together and we love each other as God has first loved us and we sing songs and we do all the things that good churches have been doing for 2,000 years. Because if that has carried the church for 2,000 years, it can carry us for another generation. We build in his tools. Uh, We protect the the church with tools that he has given to us, Uh, like pastors who watch out for false teaching and keep a close watch in our lives, like friends who correct us and warn us and say, brother, sister, should you be doing that? Uh, We fill the church with sons and daughters by the spread of the gospel, the tool that he gave us and by discipleship, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. With his tools, we build. But unless the Lord builds the house, we build in vain. And so we get together and pray all the time. We have prayer in our worship services. We have prayer meetings afterwards. Or prayer meetings throughout the week. We have a prayer list. We are praying as much as we can because the Lord is the one who builds his house. If we want to see growth, We see revival in our church. The way to get there is to ask the Lord to do it. So that's a little what it means to use his tools and pray for his help. Later in 1 Corinthians, the Lord says through Paul that at the end of all things, our ministries will be subjected to, to judgment, the fruit of our ministries judged as by fire, it says. And if anyone has built on good materials like gold and stone and the kind of stuff that doesn't burn up, that ministry will survive and that minister will receive a reward. These are ministries that are built on things like preaching of the word and the singing of gospel true songs, the kind of things that have been getting the church by for thousands of years, the gold that he gives us. But if anyone's ministry is built on poor materials, hay and straw and that kind of, it'll be burned up in the judgment. He himself will be preserved, but his reward will be lost because he didn't build with good materials. And so here we have one more picture of how building the kingdom in our power is ultimately vain and fruitless. We could have a hundred people coming down the aisles through the wrong methods. And we would have no reward if we built it on straw, right? It would burn right up. Better to have the four converts we have had this year and to build it on the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? Because there is stone and gold and jewels and things that will not perish in the fire. So that's a little of what ministry looks like here to build God's kingdom in God's power. We will not at the end of the day say that we built this place or that we did it. At the end of all things, would we rather have the memories of the cool things we built for ourselves, building our life our way, that have now perished, or people who have entered the kingdom with us and said, part of why I am here forever is because you discipled me for a year. Part of why I am here forever is because you were one of eight people through my life that shared the gospel with me. Dad, part of why I am here forever is because you opened the word around our table. There is fruit and reward that lasts. There is a life that can be restful because the Lord will give the fruit and a life that is fruitful to the very end. So church, I would have you have that kind of fruit in your life forever. Let's pray together.